Father in heaven, we have much bigger things to think about than whether our voice is good enough or anything of that small nature. We want to think about you. We want to think about the terrible condition that we're in as fallen and depraved human beings in rebellion against our Maker with hearts that by nature are not inclined to you, which even as regenerate people grieves us deeply when the remaining corruption tends to creep up and contaminate the good work that you're doing in our lives. We are sorry. So we begin on a note of contrition. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so we come broken, contrite, needy, realizing that we are desperately dependent on you for grace. Grace to understand these things, grace to experience these things, grace to teach and live out these things, grace to make you look great in these things. So on you we lean for all of that. And now come, be our our teacher. Give us hearts that are spiritually in harmony with the truth of text that we will look at so that when we look at them, there doesn't rise up resistance in our hearts, but rather a, a cohering deep down in our hearts with what is really there in the text. And so shape us by those texts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And while I was praying, a, uh, a phrase came to my mind from a YouTube video that I watched the other day from a, a black church uh, led by Elder D.J. Ward that I have preached at before and uh, he's a reformed guy and there's just this little video clip called A Grace Case and it's him talking about his desperate need for grace and how he was brought to Christ and then he just repeated several times I'm a grace case I'm a grace case and that's the way we should feel we should feel like we are who we are by the grace of God so that he gets all the glory. Um, and the biblical verse that comes closest, I suppose, to saying that is 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So even when Paul realizes he has expended himself to the max, he steps back from that expenditure of energy and says, nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God. So there's the, there's the mystery that we will bump into again and again. We do expend ourselves. We do exert our wills. We do make choices. We do work hard. But then when we're done, 
whether we can understand it fully or not, we lay it down and we say, by the grace of God, I worked. By the grace of God, I chose. And so we are a grace case. And that means Jesus will get all the glory. We will be praising the glory of his grace forever and ever. We will never get to the bottom of the mysteries of the grace of God. It's a great topic. And it occurred to me last time as I was reflecting on what we covered and what I left out that there is one piece of the lesson on irresistible grace that I did not want to leave out, that I did leave out. And so I'm going to go back and pick up a, a text from uh, the first argument. There were six arguments for irresistible grace. And the first one was the argument that faith is a gift or repentance is a gift so we don't get nudged merely as in the Arminian understanding that grace brings us to a point and then leaves us to provide the decisive impulse to finish it. We are brought to the place where grace gives us faith, gives us repentance. Now... One of the obstacles to believing that is that as you read the Bible faithfully, which you should do, the whole Bible beginning to end, is that all over the Bible you run into God speaking to humans in conditional language. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this, which on the face of it, inclines us to think, well, God is telling us what we have to do and then waiting to see if we'll do it, to which he then, if we do it, will respond with the appropriate thing. And when we see that, we're, we're inclined to think, well, it, it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem to work then to say that God is irresistibly bringing us to where we need to be because he's telling us if we will go to a certain place then he will bring us to where we need to be. So what I want to do is go back and pick up a text from that first argument on irresistible grace namely the one in Second Chronicles. This is going to seem really strange and I didn't see this text until well, I suppose in the first 20 or 25 years of my reflection on these things, but a few years ago, on one of my treks through the Bible, which I try to get through every year, um, I was reading this passage, and it hit me that, now this is, by way of illustration, extremely helpful for seeing how conditional talk from God to us should not be taken to mean he is depending on us to meet the condition or that we should consider ourselves as self-reliant in meeting the condition that he just laid out. But that in fact, 
It may be that when God says, if you do this, I will do this, he intends to enable us to do that so that he can do this. And once you see that in several places, then you're relieved of the burden to take all those conditional places that you read about in the Bible and say, oh, we're being left to ourselves there to meet the condition, so there really is no such thing as irresistible grace. You don't have to make that conclusion once you see a few texts like this. So let's look at this one. It's Second Chronicles 30, verses 6 to 12. And I'm going to read the whole thing to point out the conditionality language that God is using through Hezekiah's call. Hezekiah is calling for repentance. He sent, he's going to send messengers throughout the land with a summons for repentance. So here we read in verse 6, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. So now notice, that's what God intends or wants to do, and it looks like he's saying, you return so that I may return. You return so that God may return to you. So that's conditional. So if you return to me, I'll return to you. My, you find that a dozen times in the Bible, that you come to me and I'll come to you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Things like that. Now, do not stiffen your neck like your father's, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, so that his burning anger may turn away from you. So don't stiffen your neck. Don't be resistant. He's telling them to stop being resistant. You stop being resistant. He's telling them to yield. This is what you've got to do. Do this. Don't stiffen. Yield. Enter sanctuary. And the result will be so that his burning anger may turn away from you. So you know, just, just think how an Arminian would use this against a Calvinist right off the bat. They would say, see, you have to do this and then his anger will turn away. So clearly his anger doesn't turn away first help you and then you respond it's you respond and then he turns his anger away and that that is you find this all over the bible talk like this for if you return to the lord your brothers your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land for the lord your god is Gracious and compassionate, and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh 
as far as Zebulun, but here's the response they get. They laughed them to scorn. So he sent the couriers out with this message of, if you return, God will bring these blessings. And they laughed them to scorn, and they mocked them. Nevertheless, some men from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And when I got to verse 12, you know, having read this, I'm just, I'm reading along, I'm circling all the ifs and so that, showing the structure of the conditionality of the, of the language God is using toward me. I must do this, and then he'll do this. And when I get to verse 12, I say, oh, look at that. It changes everything. It just changes everything. The hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart. So uh, the people here, uh, they laughed them to scorn. Nevertheless, men from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun, they didn't laugh them to scorn. They humbled themselves. They responded appropriately. And they came to Jerusalem. They did what they were told to do. And then he had, he doesn't say why, he just says they did it. So if you stopped right there, you'd say, well, see, they've, they've got sovereign, decisive, ultimate, self-determining free will, and they did what they were told to do. Now God will respond and do what he promised to do. But then verse 12 says, the hand of God was also... And I check this out in the Hebrew. I want to make sure these words are actually there, not over-interpreting these words. Also on Judah. So not only Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, but also Judah. And it's the word also that clues me in to what's going to be said about why the Judah folks responded the way they did is also true of why Manasseh, Zebulun, and Asher responded the way they did. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So, Judah responded positively for the call to repentance because God gave them a heart to do it. And all of the other responses of Manasseh, Zebulun, and Asher were also owing to that same cause. So, here's the conclusion. The condition stands. You don't go back and read and say, oh, there were no conditions. The conditions are real. Return to the Lord God of Abraham, that he may return to you. Don't stiffen your neck. Yield to the Lord, 
that his burning anger may turn away. But now we know from verse 12, you must not infer from that conditionality that God is folding his arms, standing back and waiting for us unaided to fulfill the condition. That's not what's going on in this text. Not in any text, I would argue. I mean, what if this text had stopped right there at verse 11? And I didn't get any help at all in seeing this. That's the case in many texts. Many texts do not provide verse 12. They just say, do this and God will do this. So I'm saying that the structure of thinking in the Bible is such that you should never infer from the Bible that when a condition is given to man that he do a thing in order for God to do another thing, you jump to the conclusion that he leaves us to ourselves in fulfilling the, con the condition that he just gave us. Because this text says he doesn't leave us to ourselves he did the work in Judah. He did the work in Judah that needed to be done in order for him to respond. I'll give you just probably the most common example you think of is uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever will open the door, I will come in to him, sup with him, and he with me. Revelation 3.20 the issue here is not whether that's being addressed to Christians or non-Christians. It's really being addressed to Christians. But the point is the principle of if God says that to an unbeliever, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open your heart, I will come in. That's a conditional statement just like this. If you return to him, he will come to you. Should you conclude from that that... Christ is only, should be only pictured as outside the door knocking. That's all. Don't have any other picture in your mind beside that. And, and I would say, on the basis of dozens and dozens of other texts, no, we shouldn't. And there are different ways you could think about it. One is, the Holy Spirit simply enters by the chimney or window or just osmosis through the wall and he and there are different ways you could say it now you, you could say it that he just pulls the latch from the inside or you could say he inclines your heart to pull the latch from the inside and Jesus walks in and he he is actually responding to your choice but there has been another factor brought into the situation that inclines you to open the door from the inside. The way we are saved involves language that is conditional and prevenient or preemptive. If you come to me, I will save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible is replete with summons for us to make choices in response to God. But I'm pointing out here, don't ever infer from those summons to make choices to which God will then respond. Don't ever infer from those that God leaves you to yourself with no decisive help 
in providing the response that he requires you to give. You remember St. Augustine, who wrestled until he was, what, 32, with a life of lechery, had a concubine, had a kid, had a marriage, his mother Monica, brokenhearted, praying for him continually, sitting in a garden in Italy, Here's a little child singing, take up and read. He flops open his Bible, turns to Romans 13 by fortuitous divine circumstance, and, and he's saved. And he spends the rest of his life writing about sovereign grace. In fact, the sovereign joy of sovereign grace and he says things like, command what you will and grant what you command. And he knew from his own bondage to sexual sin for those 16 years, from age 16 to 32, unable to break free, wanting to break free, thinking he did, and couldn't, that God broke it. And so... Command what you will, grant what you command, is like this. This is command what you will. Return. Yield. Don't stiffen. Return. Turn away. Return. Command what you will. But, oh God, grant what you command. Give them one heart to do it. So when I'm preaching here on a Saturday or a Sunday, I, I'll look people right in the eye and I will say, lay down the arms of rebellion. Stop resisting the Holy Spirit. Yield to God. Receive the gospel. Embrace Christ. Those are all imperatives delivered straight to their will for which they are accountable to respond. And most of the people sitting out there, no, I don't think they're capable of that on their own. And I'm, I believe that the Holy Spirit will take my words and the whole situation and make them words of life so that in ways they can't understand, there will be responses of, yes, I will do that. And then after the yes, they will say, I'm a grace case. I'm a grace case. Well, enough perhaps on picking up what I left out because I found that text so helpful in my own understanding of how irresistible grace is to be understood. Lesson on total depravity. In order to understand, I think, how serious our condition is behind the need for irresistible grace. So now, I've just talked about irresistible grace, and we're moving behind it to the condition that makes it necessary. If grace were not irresistible, we would not incline to God. 
because of our condition. What's the condition? And the T in tulip is total depravity, and I want to wrestle with you concerning what the total means. Because it could be taken to mean things that it doesn't mean, and I have five meanings that it has, but I'm setting the stage first by drawing your attention to the fact that we should see our depravity in relation in relation to God. I think that's important. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Sometimes we define sin for ourselves in such a way that it doesn't feel as pervasive. But if this is if this is the command over all of our lives, how are you doing? Everything from the smallest thing of eating to the largest thing that you can imagine doing, you do it in such a way as to make God look glorious in it. I think that's what to the glory of God means. And I look at that and I think, (laughs) my life is just so weak. Nice, gentle, self-excusing word. So, the question of our shortfall is not, do you have a list of things you're supposed to do, and then you don't do it. But rather, do you believe that you're called to live every moment of your life, whether you're eating or drinking or anything at all, and do it with this great, glorious motive Intention and effect. Now, keeping that in mind, here's the old favorite verse for defining our sinfulness. So I learned as I was growing up that in sharing the gospel, one of the pieces that needs to be shared is the need piece. People won't embrace the gospel if they don't know they have a need for the gospel. And so you look for a a nice crisp, clear, biblical word concerning all of our needs, and and this is the one that's short, pithy, clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so I, I learned that growing up, but I almost never in my growing up years uh, focused on this part. This, this is what sealed the deal. You know, if you're talking to somebody about their need for a Savior, then it's the all here that, that they need to grasp. So I am in the all, and therefore I have sinned, and therefore the wages of sin is death, and therefore Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, and therefore you need a Savior, and, and you, you move in that way. But 
we need to reflect on what this is. And it's this. Sin, by its nature, is a falling short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Fall short of the glory of God. The best Romans explanation of 323 is 123. 123 talks about they exchanged the glory of God for images, four-footed beasts, animals, reptiles. They became foolish in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened and thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for substitutes. So that exchange is behind, I think, this sin is a, and falls short here, is the word hystereo, and it means lack. Lack the glory of God. What is lack the glory of God? Lacking the glory of God doesn't mean you aren't God and therefore you're at fault. You should be as glorious as God is. No, 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 no. I think lacking the glory of God is what you do if you exchange it. If you have something and then you exchange it for something else, you lack it. It's there and this is here instead. And we've all, we've all done it. And that's the essence of what sin is. We are offered God himself in all of the full range of his perfections and glories as our treasure, as the thing we admire most and delight in most and are satisfied most. And we trade it for, you name it. Just test your own heart's affections. The, the heart is a desire factory. It produces all kinds of alternative desires to, to God. Desire for computer things, desire for sex, desire for success in the company, desire for health, desire for long life, desire for latest car, desire to look beautiful, desire to lose weight, desire to eat. Just all kinds of things that this heart is just... <laughs> it's a desire factory. And when you ask, where does God and his glory fit, he's hardly even there. He's not there for the fallen, unregenerate human being. His glory is simply not a treasure. Other things are our treasure. And so sin has to be understood in order to feel the force of it, not as... You know, your mama said, don't go out in the street. You went out in the street to get a spanking. That's a sin. Or the Bible says, don't lie. You told a lie. Bank. That's a sin. That, that view of, here's my list of don'ts. Here's my sometimes breaking them. You don't ever feel the weight of sin when you do it by the list method. 
You have to bring God into the picture. The majesty of God and the greatness of God and the pervasive demand of seeing and savoring His glory that we don't do. So all have sinned. They lack the glory of God. Or, I remember this verse just knocked me off my rocker back in seminary, Romans fourteen twenty three. He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. What is sin? Anything. The best things and the worst things. doesn't matter whether they're in the list or not. Anything that is not from faith is sin. In other words, if you're not depending on God to teach you, enable you, empower you to do a thing so that He gets the glory, you're sinning. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. And hear the dynamic there of how it works. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. So the deliverer gets the glory or the giver gets the glory. 1 Peter 4.11 so everything that we do should be done in reliance upon a Redeemer to forgive us and an Empowerer to enable us so that when it is done, the Redeemer and the Empowerer get the glory. Everything that's not done that way is sin. Changing a diaper would be sin. Building a hospital would be sin. Planting a church would be sin. Having sex with your wife would be sin. Drinking a glass of cool water at the end of a race would be sin. And when you stop to think about this, it means that this world is simply drowning in a sea of sin. It's all unbelievers do is sin. That's all they do. I used to say that to classes that I taught, and, and the students would absolutely go ballistic. They just, they were so far. I mean, we have grown up in a culture that is so non-God centered that the thought that all unbelievers do is sin is off the charts unacceptable to evangelicals. And to me, it is so obvious. Of course, you have to be careful. There are ways to say that it's a good thing for an unbeliever to build a hospital rather than to commit mass murder. Hitler and Mother Teresa are not in the same category. I don't know about Mother Teresa's personal faith, so it's not the best example. 
but you, you know what I'm getting at. Um, if I ask my son, Barnabas, say when he was home, he was the last son who was home. They're all married now, four of the boys have their own kids and they're learning these things firsthand. Um, I, I want you to wash the car uh, if you want to use it tonight to go to the basketball game. He asks, you know, can I have the car go to the ball game tonight? And I say, sure. Do you wash it for me before you go? Just like have it clean for tomorrow. And he gets really bent out of shape. And he didn't set that in schedule and he doesn't want to do it. And I said, well, Barnabas... I don't want to be picky, but that's that's the requirement. So wash the car, and, uh, and sure, you can have it tonight. And he walks out of the room fuming at me. I'm his father, right? Now that fuming at me is not a good thing. He should be willingly submissive, obey his dad, be thankful that he can use the car, wash it. And he stomps out. As though he, he's not going to do what I say. And then I notice an hour or two later, he's out in the driveway. <laughs> and and every, everything in his body is exuding, I don't want to be doing this. And I'm angry at my dad for doing this. Now he's doing what I told him to do. How, do, how, how does that make me feel? Is he obeying me? In the raw, external sense, but not in the heart sense that makes any difference to me at all. He is being totally governed by principles different than his love for me. That's the way unbelievers build hospitals. It is a good thing that hospitals get built, and it's a good thing that unbelievers build them. AIDS crisis centers, and food for the hungry, and endless kinds of things that are right to happen in the raw external sense. God wants compassion to abound in the world. But the attitude if you actually boil it down to God issues, we see the ones that count. They're oblivious of God. They're not relying upon God. They don't care about God. They're blackballing God. They're not trusting God. They're giving Him zero attention of their time. And so they're like me watching my son. I mean, God is like me watching my son wash the car. Well... The car will be clean tomorrow, and that's my will for my Sunday driving. But um, my son is in rebellion. That's amazing. So you just try to feel how sinful this world is. It, if you feel it, it will change the way you articulate the problem of 
evil and blessing in the world. God never treats anybody unjustly when there's a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake or a tornado or a random shooting. Nobody who gets taken out in one of those events is ever being treated wrongly by God. We're always treated better than we deserve. Always. The amazing thing is not that any of us right now are sick in this room. The amazing thing is that any of us are alive in this room and surviving from moment to moment in view of how corrupt our hearts are. Was it Vody Balkum who told the story getting into an argument on the problem of evil with a student on a campus and the student was in his face about how God hadn't treated him or his family or his campus <clears throat> the way he thought he should and Vody stopped him and said the main question you need to answer is why God didn't kill you in your sleep last night? Why you woke up this morning? You take that totally for granted. Like, I deserve that? Every morning I wake up, I don't deserve to wake up. I don't deserve any health. I don't deserve a marriage that has lasted and is happy. But you, you, don't, you don't feel these things until the weight of, of depravity lands on you. Another illustration of making sure God is in the picture when we talk about depravity, James 2, 10 to 11. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point. He has become guilty of all. Amazing. You stumble in one point of the law, you're guilty of having disobeyed the whole law. That's just, I mean, almost anybody would say that's just off the charts, exaggerated. I mean, <laughs> just please. Uh, that means everybody's going to get executed for uh, minor traffic violations. What's he going to say to explain that? And here's his, his ground, his explanation. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. That's his answer. So do you see what he does? He says, the reason I'm talking like this, the reason I'm saying that one infraction of the law makes you guilty of the whole law is because he, he said that, which means an offense against the living infinite God is over. Just one. 
It's just over. There is something so cataclysmic in moral significance about a creature lifting up its will against its creator, infinitely perfect, infinitely glorious, infinitely holy creator, and saying, no, that just ends it. That, that is so huge, it covers everything. His, his guilt is universal. Because he's the same God who says one and the other. The, the, issue, the, the argument for why this holds is that he who said the one said the other. And you're op- opposing him. It's not that... Different commandments are of different significance, but rather, he's of infinite significance, and you've just resisted him. And that's an infinite offense. So, those several passages give you the flavor of why I think depravity uh, is serious, namely because it has to do with God.